MC Lobshire, the host of the Cash Ninja podcast and also the president and chief wealth and investment strategist of Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate cash flow banking, also known as infinite banking, with their business and investments. If you're interested in learning more about how we create strategies that integrate cash flow banking and investments to turbocharge them, you can access a video series at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Here is your host inside the dojo, MC Laubscher. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's show, we're going to take a closer look at term, whole life, and universal life insurance. My guest in today's episode is Todd Langford from Truth Concepts. Revealing the truth behind the numbers has been a trend in Todd's life as he and his late partner, Norman Baker, developed financial calculators. Time and time again, Todd found himself faced with some very strong opposition to his point of view. Though many of these financial people had more than 30 years of experience and training in financial planning, Todd had something they lacked, proof. His calculators proved definitively whether a plan was viable or not. Seeing the truth in black and white literally shifted the paradigm of these financial experts. Todd also offers a three-day truth training event available to anyone who wants to tell the whole truth about most of the financial strategies and products in the marketplace. In today's conversation, we're going to look closer at life insurance and the different types and also look at the truth about different life insurance vehicles. Since just as with all financial products, there's a lot of half-truths shared and sold to the public. And because of that, many people are not aware of what they have or that the insurance vehicle will actually do what they think it's supposed to do. I've also received some emails from listeners asking if universal life products, such as Index Universal Life, uh, also known as IULs, and Variable Universal Life, known as VULs, can be utilized in the infinite banking concept and cash flow banking strategy. We, of course, only use a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy with a mutual insurance company for this strategy for many reasons, which some of them will be shared and discussed today. I also do a lesson on this question in my course, which you can grab at yourownbankingsystem.com. MC Lobshire, the creator and host of the Cashflow Ninja and president of Producers Wealth. And I'm on a mission to help you achieve economic and financial freedom as quickly as possible. I achieve this by integrating the infinite banking concept with real estate investments to increase your efficiency and returns and recapture cash flow that you're not even aware of that you're losing. I share the number one strategy for investors in my holistic wealth creation course at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, MC. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you on. Uh, I've learned a lot from you already on my journey. 
So uh, very excited to jump into the, our conversation today. Todd, before we get started, can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey with my listeners? Sure. So um, back in the late 80s, I, uh, as I was kind of finishing school, I got introduced to my mentor in the industry, um, Norman Baker. And Norman taught me really everything uh, that I know that I've learned over the years, most of it about money, about um, financial math, and about a lot of those pieces. And and um, in those days, that was right when the IBM PC came out. So um, Norman always had the latest and greatest of whatever was there technology-wise, which there wasn't a lot at the time. And uh, and so I was working really more on a, a IT side. I found that I could just kind of computers kind of fit who I was. And uh, so I spent a lot of time in his office, started writing spreadsheets from a, for him in those days. That was all Lotus 1, 2, 3, and, uh, which no longer exists because they stayed where they were. <laughs> but um, anyway, we, we wrote spreadsheets. We were introduced to a kind of a different way of looking at uh, advising and set out to kind of disprove some of it initially and then saw that it was true and started writing uh, additional spreadsheets and, and things to support that. And then I, uh, it actually threw me into the software business and um, wrote software, did training uh, for f- financial advisors and, and moved out of that and back into the personal uh, finance area, personal advising. And um, in fact, connected with Kim's company, Kim Butler's company, um, where we could could work nationwide. And and Kim kind of pioneered that side as far as being able to do that nationwide. And it came from uh, her experiences with Robert Kiyosaki because Robert would go teach um, some new ideas in a new city and say, hey, you need to talk to my financial advisor, Kim Butler. And she'd get all these calls from New York or from somewhere else. And so she figured out a way to start being able to, to work with those clients over the phone and over the web. <clears throat> and so I joined her firm and, and worked with clients one-on-one again, back from the way I was doing it in the beginning. And we needed software for us, so I created Truth Concepts really for us to use. And other advisors heard about it and said, hey, we'd like to get involved with it too. And so that put me back in the software side. And I do love that side of it because I, I see where teachers that really love their work, they do it because they see the difference that it makes. They see when that light bulb comes on and there's just nothing like that when, when you can change somebody's perspective from what they thought to be true to what actually is true. That's so true. And, and, and the one thing that has amazed me on my journey too, and I really, uh, I could resonate with your story when you seek and you look out to disprove something, you're like, well, wait a second, this, this is not the way that this is. And then you use the math, you uncover it a little bit, you run different scenarios, and then you come to your own conclusion uh, now, there's not a lot of folks that, that do that, <laughs> but especially <laughs> right. when it comes to money and financial stuff. We just accept a lot of what we've been told uh, through the, the different types of platforms and, and media sources. What are some of the, 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 the big or the basic things that a lot of people take for granted and just assume it as, as truthful? Um, from the, the information and data that they consume, which, which turns out not to necessarily be the truth when it, when it, comes, to, when it comes to money and, and building wealth that you've seen out there. Well, it is really interesting you bring that up because, you know, you think about, okay, so the financial industry is math-based. I mean, you can't, 
I don't care if everybody gets in a room and votes that three plus three is seven. It, it doesn't make it true. The truth is it's still six. And so something that's math based, you wonder how could we have so much inf- misinformation about something that's based on absolutes, on mathematics. And what I have found is that most of the misinformation comes from some basis in truth that's just, they they can mathematically prove one piece of it, but the analysis they make on the, or the conclusion that they pull from that is is what's not correct. Um, A a big example is um, the 15 year mortgage versus the 30 year mortgage. And one of the big pieces there is the difference in the amount of interest paid. And it is absolutely true. It's a mathematical fact that we will pay more interest cumulatively on a 30 year mortgage than we will on a 15 year mortgage. Okay. But that's just a fun fact. It really doesn't mean anything because it doesn't have anything to do with the actual cost. It's just the cumulative interest amount. Once we apply a time value of money on it, the 30 year may actually be cheaper than the 15. And in most cases it is. Right. So, so even though, yes, there was mathematical fact that we paid more interest on a longer mortgage, it doesn't necessarily mean there's more cost. And that's where people make a mistake is they throw certain terms out there that people hear and they're logical and they make sense and they're accurate. It's just the conclusion of that's not necessarily accurate. Um, Another big place is on interest rates. People really don't understand interest rates. Um, And this is something, again, that that Norman taught me. And and I'll I'll be honest, a lot of bankers don't understand interest rates. It's how how their business makes money, but they really haven't figured that piece of it out. So it's not something that's easily understood or it's understood by the masses. I mean, people in our industry don't really understand how interest rates work. And an example is, you know, let's say that you had – um, going, let's say that the bank was, was, uh, paying you 3% to, to, you know, on your deposits, on your savings, and they were loaning money out at 6%. Well, most people will just subtract those two numbers and say, well, the bank's making, uh, 3%. And it is true that there's a 3% spread six minus three, but you can't subtract interest rates to find out what the profits there. So if we turn this around just a little bit, And so let's say that, uh, and we put it in actual dollar amounts rather than interest rates, we can really see what's going on. So so let's base it on $100 for just a minute. So let's say that I have $100 and I loan it to the bank. In other words, I put it in my savings account and they're gonna pay me 3% to rent my money for a year. So they're gonna basically pay me $3 to rent my $100 for a year. But what they're gonna do is, with my $100, they're gonna sublet that out to somebody else at 6%. So the bank didn't have any investment in the $100 outside of what they had to pay to rent that money. So basically it cost them $3 to sublet that out, that $100 out to somebody else, and they're gonna collect $6 on that. Well, if you can invest $3 to get $6, that's not 3%, that's 100%. And so when we start to understand how interest rates work, that's something that we can shift from the advantage of the financial um, industry back to our side of the ledger. So now we can take these ideas and use them for ourselves. What if we were in that position? What if we could find money that cost us three or four percent or five percent, and then we could put that to an investment that earned 
six or seven or eight or nine or 10, all of a sudden we're starting to make money the same way the banks are. So we're starting to use life or starting to use interest rates to our advantage rather than being taken advantage of. And when we look at that, many times people see that as a small difference. In other words, if we can take money and go from 4% to 5%, well, that's only 1%. No, that's 25% increase. And we need to start thinking in those terms. And if you run a future value calculator out on money, in other words, based on 4% over 30 years versus 5%, you're going to see that that's not a 1% difference. It's much larger than that. Another thought that came to mind when you said that there's a little bit, it's a slither of truth in it, and then, but you don't get the whole picture is, is the term that's thrown around, especially in the financial services area of average rate of return. That's right. And it's the same principle. You can't just add up all of the ups and downs and then divide them by the number of years and get an accurate number. It is true. That is the average of that time frame. So mathematically, like you're saying, that's, you know, that average is an accurate number. It just doesn't mean anything because when you actually do the ups and downs, they act very differently than that average. And then it really gets compounded if you're talking about cash flows. So because it's not a level amount, those ups and downs, if it's down when you need to withdraw, the devastation of the account is huge. Yeah, it was quite um, quite comical. I received a prospectus of some mutual fund that that was sent to me, um, and uh, it said something to the effect that you know our eight percent average rate of return for the last ten years. And I thought to myself, well, we're in two thousand and eighteen. I'm pretty sure in the last decade, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, right. and two thousand and eleven, kind of fitted you know somewhere in there, right? So, <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's- yeah, based based on what you're saying, absolutely. Um, a conversation that I wanted to to get into, and a topic that I wanted to discuss uh, a little bit more today is insurance, because this is one of the areas that there's a lot of misinformation, and there's also a lot of information that's misunderstood. Probably one of the most misunderstood areas of finance, uh, uh, in my opinion. So I think for us to just set the table for uh, this discussion, let's start with um, the roots and the main function of life insurance and the role that it plays uh, within families and the communities. Sure. Um, you know, the, the way life insurance was initially created, uh, if you go back in time, you might have a, 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 a family where, you know, if the, if the main breadwinner died, the, the family was just devastated. And, you know, what happens to the kids, to the spouse over that time frame? And, you know, the, the results were, were, were awful. And so the towns would get together and they would start creating some pools where everybody would kind of put money together. This, in some places, turned into some fraternal organizations. Um, in fact, some of the old life, old, uh, mutual life insurance companies were actually started as a fraternal organization. And, and, and the idea was they could pool their, their risk. So since they didn't think everybody was going to die, they could put in a portion. And if somebody in the town died, then there would be money to pay for it um, to help raise the, the children and everything else along the way. Well, one of the problems that can come in, certainly in those early times, was a disease could come in and actually wipe out everybody in the, in the town. So as they started spreading out and the life, the mutual life insurance companies came into existence, the, the further they could go, the wider they could spread that risk. So now they're on a pool where the risk actually fits. 
because they've got a large enough pool of numbers. So if this town got a serious disease and a lot of people died, they, it could be covered by you know towns that were further away. So so that whole idea is where it came to be, and it was all about taking care of of the people. And I and I think what happened over time is um, that got off track. Um, and I that's the reason people hear bad things about life insurance. I think that the life insurance industry earned the questionable reputation that it has because of some decisions that were made, mainly through the 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, decisions that they made that didn't have the client in their best interest. Instead, what happened was they got their actuaries and bean counters together to all figure out um, how it was going to be profitable for the company even though maybe it wasn't the best thing for the client. And so these products ended up um, coming apart. We had, when the, uh, when the UL, Universal Life, first came on the scene, it was on the books, by the numbers, quite profitable for the insurance company because it was a shift of risk from the insurance company to the client because the guarantees went away that exist in the whole life uh, policy, which was the you know the first one that was that was created. It was designed to be there the whole time. So as this shift occurred, while by the numbers it was profitable for the insurance companies, I would question whether it was really profitable in the long run because of the serious um, issue they had with PR as a result of that decision. And um, I think a lot of those uh, policies ended up being paid off as under the table claims and, and other things where the insurance company didn't want the publicity. So they paid stuff off that they didn't expect to have to pay off. Because like I say, in the shift of risk, the idea was um, the policy would come apart before the person actually died. And we saw so much of that with the minimally funded universal life that came out in the 80s. Um, it so much of that stuff came apart. And, and the reason it did was they based it on these high interest rates that we saw in the eighties. We saw interest rates on CDs that they actually went double digit, but they, they hovered in around the 9% range. And so these illustrations were run based on 9% from now on, on safe money. And you know, the policies just couldn't sustain, but you, you have to wonder in a lot of that, it, it comes down and, and this is the way a lot of that, uh, universal life was and, and is sold. And that is that it's a permanent policy and it's, it's the same thing as whole life for half the price. Right. Well, <laughs> how does, how does that work? I, I, I mentioned Norman Baker earlier and like I said, Norman was my mentor and, and really had a different way of thinking about the way uh, financial mathematics worked, which was right on track. And one of the things he told me early on, which I think is just key, and if we can keep this um, our, in our thought, I think it'll make everything else make sense. And that was there are no deals in the insurance industry. And, and what he meant by that was that everything is a trade-off between risk and cost. And so let's think about that just from the extremes just a minute. So term insurance is very, and I put this in quotes, cheap. If we understand the cost of term insurance, it's not really cheap. But from a premium standpoint, the premium is very low. And the reason the premium is very low on term insurance is because there is very little risk on the insurance company's part of having to pay that claim. Because in all likelihood, if you can qualify for the insurance, 
the insurance will lapse before there's a likelihood of death. On the other end of the spectrum is whole life insurance where the company, the, the policy is guaranteed to endow. And so what that means, at one time they were 100, now the policies are 120, and I think there's gonna be another change here pretty quick with the new CSO tables um, that, are, that are on the horizon. But what happens is, if you live, if you've got a whole life policy in force, and you live to 121, the life insurance company will pay you the death benefit. So it's guaranteed to pay out. The result of that is the company, the insurance company, has a larger amount of risk there, and it's for a longer time frame. Therefore, the premium is higher on a whole life policy than it is on term policy because it's a shift of risk from the insurer to the insurance company. And then we find UL, universal life, and it falls somewhere in between. And it falls somewhere between on the other side too. It typically lasts longer than a term policy, but it's also not guaranteed to endow in most cases. So, so the issue is it doesn't have the long-term guarantees that exist and that trade-off in risk from the insurance company allows them to be able to charge a lower premium. Gotcha. Yeah, it's very, it's been very interesting because I mean the prime going back to the primary way that you set up insurance was to was to protect human life value, right? So exactly. term plays a role in that. Whole life protects the human life value, the capacity uh, for the the person to produce and create in this world, and especially if it's a breadwinner uh, inside a family. So that's kind of where it fits in. And then obviously the whole life a portion of it. We've talked about it through cash flow banking and infinite banking. Uh, of how you can structure that and utilize it with an, an overall strategy uh, to implement some of the same concepts and principles that you've shared, Todd, that the banks use to uh, to create and generate wealth, right? So that's kind of, that kind of plays into that. And then there's a lot of folks then that that is drawn, as you mentioned, to very, very well-marketed products such as Universal Universal Life, which I don't know if you really, if it's not, if it's not guaranteed to endow to really put that in the permanent life insurance category. Um, (laughs) But what are some of the things, because there's, you know, for, for, for listeners that might be listening saying, well, I've never really heard of this. You might've heard something like an index universal life or, you know, variable universal life, IULs and VULs and ULs and, and all those different those different things. What is the way that this is built and compared to, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the other, the other option, the whole life, the permanent life insurance, and what are some of the the, the, the main differences uh, between the, the whole life vehicle and the way that this this vehicle set up, Universal Life? Sure. Well, and, and, and what I'm going to talk about is in, in generalities, um, the, the main uh, way that, that this works, can there be some exceptions? Yes. And they're, you know, they're tweaking stuff all the time. So there can be some changes. And I know a lot of people are going to jump out and say, well, mine does this or that. What I'm talking about here is just the general idea behind the way that uh, both of these products work. So any of those things that you're talking about, the IUL, the VUL, or the interest-sensitive UL, they're all built on the same universal life chassis, typically with just a difference in the way the crediting happens within the policy. So on a universal life policy, rather than everything being combined like it is in a whole life, you really have a separate Um, savings portion tied to a mortality or really kind of like a term policy. So it's two policies together and you try to build enough on the cash side so that there's enough money in there, hopefully, if the investments go right, so that there's enough money to pay those 
steadily increasing mortality charges out into the future. And as long as the saving side can support it, the policy's fine. But understand those mortality charges are getting huge out there at the end. So if, if there's a mistake made early on the amount of money that's in there or the, the uh, rate of earnings is less than was expected, then the policy will basically consume itself because it'll have to pull so much money from the cash side to support the the death benefit side that it'll just lapse. It'll just come apart. And so just looking at that. So um, that's the way the basic universal life is, uh, is put together. And the variable universal life, what that is, the savings portion is actually able to invest in the market. So the person who owns it can dictate some of that within some limits of what investments, what market investments are for the saving side of that uh, universal life policy. And then the IUL policies, it uses an index for the saving side. And typically the way the index uh, side works is there is a typically a floor. So if, in other words, if the uh, a lot of them are at 0%, uh, or in those low ranges, what it means is if the market has a negative year, the policy is guaranteed that you can't earn less than zero. In other words, it wouldn't deplete the cash portion of that account. The trade-off for that is it also caps the top end, and there's some other trade-offs in there as well. So in other words, if the, the cap might be at 10%. So if the market rebounded and did 20%, they're only going to credit 10 you also don't get credit for the dividends that are earned on the on the, um, on the market. And the reason is for all of that is because where the variable policies are actually invested in the market, the indexed universal life policies, the savings portion is not actually invested in the marketplace. Instead, they just use the index to determine what crediting rate the life insurance company is going to credit to the policy. So it's actually pulling the money from the same pool of funds that the whole life dividends come from, but it uses the index to determine what's going to happen there. Now, the difference, which this is a big one for me on the way the guarantees work between these is with a whole life policy, and this may be a little bit hard to wrap your head around, but on a whole life policy, there is an actual guaranteed cash flow cash value increase every year. It's a number, okay? Whereas on a universal life, the guarantees are typically a guaranteed rate on the saving side, okay? Here's where the difference between those two are. You may have a guaranteed rate, but, there, but there's not a guarantee on the cost side. So even though you may guarantee that the, that the, the policy uh, wouldn't do less than 6% on its saving side, if your costs were 8%, you actually have a negative return that year. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so while they guarantee a rate many times, they don't guarantee the actual dollar amount or the net amount. With a whole life policy, there is a guaranteed dollar amount increase every single year on the cash value side. So ultimately, even if even if the policy, even if the whole life policy never paid a dividend, the policy is guaranteed to pay, uh, to endow, to pay out the death benefit if premiums are paid throughout. 
So that's a big difference typically on the guaranteed side. And that's what's important to me because one thing we don't know is what's going to happen in the future. And I want to make sure that my life insurance is going to be there regardless of what happens. Now, the likelihood of dividends not being paid for the next however many years is pretty small. I don't think in I don't think you could find an insurance company that hadn't paid a dividend a mutual company in over 100 years. So it's not that it couldn't happen. It's just that it never has. So the likelihood of paying a dividend, which would go on top of that guaranteed cash value is, is you know, pretty reasonable. You're listening to Todd Langford on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic market and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments for number of solutions at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. You're listening to Todd Langford on the Cashflow Ninja podcast, and I'm back to our interview. Absolutely. Now, the other things of it too is use it, utilizing it as far as an in an, within an overall strategy. Um, when you have a moving chassis underneath you, it makes it a little bit difficult, and it doesn't necessarily suit uh, utilizing it within a lot of the systems and processes that we've shared. Um, uh, of how to implement some of the banking principles um, that uh, that you shared earlier, Todd. Right, and because it, and, and the reason is, you don't really know what it's going to take to keep that policy alive. What kind of return are you going to have to have? And if you start pulling on some of those numbers since you've pushed it so close to the limits, in other words, most of the time the calculations are made based on you know if everything works out just right, we'll reduce the premium, which is why you know it can be considerably less premium than the whole life side on the universal life. Well, that means there's less money there. So if, if it, if there's fluctuations that aren't just that, uh, that aren't advantageous, um, it can have huge impact. And the problem is the impact comes way down the road at the end. And then it's harder to fix it because people typically don't realize it until we get out there at the end. And, and the result of that is it can be pretty dangerous to make uh, decisions on other assets, on the spending of those other assets, if you don't know for sure what's going to happen. And it's kind of like this. If you knew without a doubt that at some point out in the future, you were going to win the lottery, would that change the way you were able to spend your assets now? Since that's the case with a whole life policy, since I can lean on those guarantees and know absolutely that that's going to pay out at some point in the future, it gives me some freedom on spending my other assets. And what I'm talking about is the death benefit. We've kind of talked about, and I know you have on other shows, talked about the value of that cash value using the, the IBC process and other things in order to create additional wealth during, mainly during the accumulation phase. But what happens is the policy really shifts during the distribution phase of having a lot of the power in that death benefit. Because now then during the distribution phase, knowing that death benefit is going to come back into the estate allows us huge freedoms on how we spend 
those assets. Um, it was great. And the last truth training that we had, um, one of the guys in the class came up with a, um, a new saying that I really like. We've talked about many times the economic value of certainty. And so that's hugely beneficial. Knowing that life insurance is there, knowing it's consistent, knowing the death benefits there, that's that economic value of certainty and what it allows you to do. But what he said was, he said, how about the economic value of permission? And that, that to me is just a huge, huge new look at it. And what we're talking about is the fact that that life insurance policy is there, that death benefits guaranteed to come in, it gives us the permission to do other things with our assets along the way that are going to be more advantageous and more strategic, allowing more net income or cash flow um, during that retirement phase. And it's interesting because people focus so often on net worth. And that's what we're taught to do. How much money are you going to have at X time? Well, net worth is not really a usable number. What's usable is the cash flow from that net worth. So if you think about it, we could literally have a, a, a smaller net worth, but have more cash flow from it if we had the right strategies in place. And so having as many strategies available is hugely beneficial. And an example is with the life insurance, if I know that's if that's there to take care of things, then I have all kinds of options. If I know that policy is going to endow, it's going to pay out at some point in time, either by my dying before endowment age or at endowment age, it's going to pay out. Then now I have the ability to do all kinds of different things. Um, one of the things would be a reduced paid up. It's called a RPU, where we could at some point in time say, you know what, let's just lower the death benefit uh, to a point where it's guaranteed that the policy doesn't need any more premiums and it'll just float along and create enough um, additional cash value increases to keep the policy alive so that it endows at death. Another option could be a pension maximization idea. So if we had this life insurance along the way, so let's say that somebody was in a position to have a pension and typically what people have to do is they select a joint pension distribution option, which means um, they want to make sure that if the primary, if the, the person who has the pension uh, died early, that there's still income for the spouse. Well, making the decision to do a joint payout reduces the amount of money that the primary holder gets. Because there's a cost for having that longer guarantee on the pension payout. But if we have life insurance in place that we used along the way to take advantage of on the accumulation side of buying assets and doing other things and using the uh, the banking concepts. Now that we've gotten to the distribution phase of the pension payout, we could select the single life only payout, which is going to be a higher payout than the joint, because we know that if we died, that life insurance policy is going to come back into the estate and then the spouse could live off of that. So it allows us, like I say, to better spend our assets so that we get a higher payout on our existing assets. And it all comes from the coverage of that death benefit that we put in place, you know, at some point in time in our life. Absolutely. Now, you'd mentioned when a universal life policies come apart, Todd. And I mean, all you have to do is go to Google and type in universal life and then lawsuits. And I guess there's an hour ago, a new, new story 
Transamerica just just settled uh, as as I'm as I'm doing that, and it and it talks about when these things come come, uh, come apart. What are some of the things that folks would see in there? The way that these policies are structured and how they structured it um, uh, uh, at the at the end. What are some of the, the the risks and what could potentially happen? Well, typically when they when the universal life policy gets into trouble. Um, it's very difficult to fix because the increase in premiums is so enormous. And so with a whole life policies, the premium amounts are guaranteed and it's guaranteed if you pay those premium amounts, the policy will stay in force and, and go all the way to endowment or to, to death before endowment. With the universal life policies, um, they don't have that same structure, unfortunately. So, so what happens is um, if the costs inside the policy get too high, or the investment didn't earn enough along the way and that side fund that we talked about earlier, then there's, there's not enough earnings to cover the increased costs on the mortality side. And so it just, like say, the, the cost of the term insurance on the policy, the, the death benefit just eats up all the cash value and the policy just dies. And unfortunately we see this happen to people and it's really sad because they bought the policy with the idea that it was a permanent policy. And, you know, we've, we've looked at some of the definition of permanent. I don't have one right up, but it has to do with, in my mind, with not changing over time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that right. it's guaranteed to be there. That's, that's what permanent means to me. So I don't understand. We, we know, we understand term insurance is not permanent. Why? Because it's not guaranteed to be there all the way through. We know it's going to come apart. What we don't know on a, on a universal life policy is when that's going to happen. But since it's not guaranteed to go all the way, how can you call that permanent? And that's where people get fooled. They think that they did this. And you hear these bad talks about uh, about life insurance companies. Hey, they don't play claims. Um, you know, they just take money from people. And, and where that talk comes from, and it's like we talked about earlier, they earned it from the mistakes they made in the products they created back in the 80s and have, have come uh, from there forward. And it's the idea that they're profitable for the insurance company, but not necessarily good for the client. So these policies, um, if they if they don't last, and let's say that a family did without, they didn't go on vacations to take care of their family. They decided they would put the money towards life insurance. So they, you know, the family saved in some areas and cut back on lifestyle in order to make that happen. And they paid premiums all the way through, all the way through, all the way through, and Towards the end, the policy, even though they're paying premiums, um, can't stay in existence without a huge increase. Well, they decide, hey, we don't have the money to be able to do that. So they let the policy lapse. So it just goes away with no value. The spouse may not have been totally understanding of what they were buying. Maybe the kids weren't either. And what they hear is, man, my parents or my spouse, they pay these premiums all the way out. And now the insurance company is refusing to pay the claim. That's not really what happened. What happened was the policy just didn't have enough money to support itself and it lapsed. But they all, all, all the family members knew was that there was a lot of money paid out for something that didn't exist. And so they think the insurance companies have done something terrible to them. And I would agree that it, they, they have, they have from the standpoint that they didn't educate the client into how it worked. And, you know, I would question if, if you sold a universal life policy on these, on this understanding or if people bought it based on understanding that, Hey, yeah, my premium's cheaper than a whole life, but it's got a chance it won't survive until I die. I think that would change people's 
um, perspective on whether they would buy that universal life policy, but they're not buying it on those terms. They're buying it on the idea that it's permanent and it's supposed to be there. And they see it as the same thing as a whole life when it's not based on the guarantees. In fact, I hear, uh, I hear agents saying, Hey, I sell universal life. It's the same thing as whole life, only it's cheaper. <laughs> you, you can't have it both ways. There are no deals in the insurance industry. The reason it's cheaper is because it has less guarantees and it's less risk for the insurance company. Now, the Truth Concepts uh, software that you've built and, and that you utilize, Todd, could you share a little bit more information uh, just around the software? What are some of the, the ways that people can use the software to, to look at uh, options and also analyze opportunities? Sure. So the software, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll hear people sometimes say, oh, that's the software that shows how great life insurance is. Um, <laughs> that's not really what it is. The software um, it's kind of got a binding name with being called Truth Concepts. It's really designed just to lay out whatever um, financial um, idea you want to look at. And it weighs in all of the pieces. Um, the fact that typically life insurance rises to the top when when all the information, not just partial information is in there, is not because the software is designed to make it look like that. It's because it's just the, the power of, of permanent life insurance that people don't understand. They used to, life insurance used to have a great reputation before the industry made the switch. In fact, one of the things we like to do is we talk about the way we do advising, planning with our clients is really traditional. And by traditional, I mean what happened from the 60s back when life insurance was treated as a very reputable product and very reputable people that uh, ran the insurance companies and sold life insurance. When it shifted in the 80s to how can we get some more money is when they got off the track. And we like to call that typical planning, whereas what we do is traditional because it goes back to the, to the old way of doing it with putting the client first. But the, the software, like I say, is just designed to show the truth and everything. And many times what happens is, and it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, MC, with the averages in the marketplace. You know, you'll see this perspective of, oh, we've as averaged, you know, 8% over the last 20 years. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the, that the asset, that actually the portfolio actually earned 8%. It just means that was the average of all the the interest rates, ups and downs, added together and divided by the number of years. So that's one fallacy there. The other, the other part of it is there are also fees around that that come off of the whatever the earnings are, and there's taxes that come off of that. So once we get all of that information and boil it down, and let's look at what the net is that we do on the life insurance side, that's what the software really does. It brings all those pieces, rather than talking about gross from gross returns from other assets compared to the uh, net returns in a life insurance policy. We put it all to the, to the side of net. And so it just lets us look at everything. And life insurance is not an investment. Life insurance really is more of a savings asset and everybody needs savings places, but who wants to do it in the, uh, at the bank at half a percent or actually, you know, some banks are even charging you for having money sitting there. So so you're not even getting zero um, at the bank. So that's what we're talking about with the life insurance cash value. That's really a more like asset dollars that we can use that are safe um, versus uh, investments. And since those dollars are usable, we can actually 
you know, borrow against that cash value and go to outside investments if that's what we want to do. So the, the Truth Concept software just allows advisors mainly to be able to go in there and look and help a, a client uh, compare different scenarios, compare different um, investment strategies or tools and see what's going to best fit the client. And, and ideally, what best fits the client is not just about the numbers. It's bigger than that. It's, okay, what are the risks on doing this out of the future? What, what does this mean to my family based on our objectives? And as we know, that doesn't come down to just pure numbers. That comes down to, to, to what's much bigger than that, what's much more important than that. Absolutely. Now, I thought uh, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? That's, uh, that's always a tough question. Um, for me, I think one of the big ones, and I think it's something we've really gotten away from in society, but it's the idea of self-reliance. Um, it's investing in ourselves. And, you know, our intellectual capital is one of our greatest riches. And we're taught to, to pass that off and, and not understand its importance. And so, um, and, it, and it has to do with the responsibility side as well, you know. Um, we need to take responsibility for the things we do. We need to be able to rely on ourselves. So we need to put our mind forth. We need to, it, you know, it's on us to, to seek out the truth. And that's what I would really push hard on is the idea of self-reliance and responsibility. It's not somebody else's fault that you're where you are typically. It's because of decisions that you've made or things that have that, that you've done. And so we need to take responsibility for that as a whole. And I think we'll start to see the upside of that. And that is, hey, if I take responsibility in my uh, in the negative things that happen, I get to take responsibility for the positive things. And I am responsible for making my life positive and for surrounding myself with uh, the tools and the knowledge to have the best. Um, the, the golden rule is another big one, and I think it's something, too, that we've gotten away from. And it's, you know, just the old idea of, you know, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Um, it's, it's, it's not a selfish standpoint. We have to understand that there are other people around us, and we need to think, think about them as well um, when we do things. I think we've gotten to the point of, in, in many areas, of the idea that um, I should do whatever it is best for me, but I think we need to look larger than that and realize, hey, why don't we do things that we would like to have other people do for us too? And it, it pays back in huge dividends if we would just get back to that side of it. And then the last thing, and I guess it goes along with the truth concepts, and that's just do the right thing. You know, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you can see the the uh, when you when you choose to do the right thing, it may not be beneficial at the moment it it, it happens but it will in the long run. And that's what endures. Absolutely. Todd, where can my listeners learn more about you and Truth Concepts? And this is uh, also something I believe there's a free trial where listeners can go onto the website and test out the software and play around with it for a couple of days. Sure. If you go out to truthconcepts.com, um, and actually, if you go under the support side, you could go directly truthconcepts.com slash support. And inside of there, you can download the software 
It'll ask you for a code, but it will run for 10 days without one, so you can play around with it. There's also a huge amount of information in the blog, um, a, lot of, a, a lot of things to counter misinformation and how we use the software to do that. So we'll have some, some statements out there about what people typically think to be the truth, and then we walk through the, the calculators to show how maybe it is or maybe it isn't. And so there's a bunch of material in the blog. There's some tutorials out there. There's a, just a ton of information. Um, feel free to peruse the website and download the, the software. And it'll, like I say, it'll run for 10 days with, without any codes or anything. Fantastic. Thank you so much for making that available. And Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you, MC, for having me. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Thank you for joining me again on the Cashflow Ninja. Thank you for all your support. You rock. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at CashflowNinja.com or text CashflowNinja to 44222. I'm also posting daily videos on Facebook and YouTube and will live stream weekly starting May 2018. To make sure you don't miss any of the live streams, please like and subscribe to my Facebook and YouTube platforms. I'm also dropping content on Instagram daily. Be sure to follow us on Instagram to get in on the action. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. That's our show for today. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.